Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this evening uh, to 2 Samuel and chapter 23. 2 Samuel 23, and you'll find this on page 275 in the Church Bibles. And this evening we're reading verses 1 through 7. And you'll see the heading uh, there that... uh, not even the heading, it just is uh, in the ESV that says the last words of David is what we're looking at. Second <clears throat> Samuel chapter 23. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on the cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, For they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear. And they are utterly consumed with fire. It used to be more common uh, that when someone was nearing the end of their life, uh, for people to sit by their bedside and to take down uh, their last words. Uh, to write down their last sayings. And the reason for that is because at the end of our life, it gives a sense of opportunity uh, to reflect on what we are thinking about and what is important to us, how a person is approaching their death and what is their perspective on their own mortality. So it gives uh, an opportunity for a person to give expression to how they're approaching death. It gives a way of articulating Uh, their own perspective on things. It also gives an opportunity for a person to communicate what matters to them to others. They are able to have one more opportunity to say this is something important and to leave it uh, with others uh, even as they leave this world. And uh, Matthew Henry, that famous commentator who lived during a time when this was much more common, said that when we come to the end of our days, We should use our words to exalt God and to edify one another. Our last words should be words that are going to build others up, even as our own earthly life comes to an end. It's not as common today to write down our last words, and there's various reasons for that. But even still, we can understand the the reason why people did it, and we can appreciate the significance of someone's last words. It is highlighting something of importance uh, that they want to express. It's giving an opportunity 
to tell us what they're really uh, focused on, even at the end of their days. And this evening, we want to look at David's last words as king of Israel, what it is that he wants to leave behind, how he wants to exalt God, but also how he wants to edify the people of God as a whole. And we're coming uh, then to 2 Samuel chapter 23. David's last days are actually given considerable attention in the scriptures. There's no fewer than 12 chapters in the Bible that are devoted to David's last days. Most of those chapters are dealing with the succession of David, how Solomon will replace David as king. Many of those chapters are also dealing with the instructions that David gives to Solomon about how to go about building that temple for God. And so many of these chapters are concentrated on that uh, issue of who is going to succeed David and what is his job as king. But when you come to Samuel, uh, Samuel is not interested in dealing with the succession, who is going to be king after David. Rather, the book of Samuel wants us to look, it doesn't even mention David's death. Instead, the book of Samuel is content to simply tell us what is David thinking about as he comes to his own end. What shapes the king of Israel as he must part from the people of God? How is he trying to direct them in the future? And here we are given his last words and how he is trying to build them up and to move forward without them. Uh, and so we want to look at these verses this evening, and we want to see that because God's promises extend forward, we are to be people of hope. That's what you see here in David. At the end of his life, David is not simply looking down, that this is the end. David is looking forward and looking upward. He's, he's a man marked by hope, even as his own life is coming to an end. Because he's centered on God. Because he's shaped by God's promises. And so we want to think about these last words of David in the sense of seeing it as a word of hope. And then secondly, as a word of warning. It says there in verse 1 that these are the last words of David. We don't need to necessarily press that uh, to the extreme of saying that this is the exact last words that David ever uttered. If you turn to the book of Kings, for instance, you'll find that David, when his time to die was drawing near, David also gave instructions to Solomon about what Solomon was to do when he became king. Those words were uttered just before David died. But these words here are marked as David at the end of his life, <clears throat> some of his last words. And it may be easiest and best to simply understand them as David's last official statement. This is David's last public address to the people of God. His last uh, speech, as it were, uh, to the nation, to the kingdom of Israel. And we are to understand that as his last uh, uh, statement. But we begin, we begin to understand something of the importance of this, these words, not just because David is nearing death, but even in the way that it is being framed. You notice there it says that this is the oracle of David. That word oracle is a weighty word in and of itself. 
It's used frequently in the Old Testament scriptures, 376 times. And in all of those occurrences, with the exception of just 11, so 365 of those occurrences, it is a weighty word from God himself. So here David is saying, I have something important to say. These are my last words, but they are weighty words of great significance that I need to communicate to you. I need to pass this on to you. You need to live in light of these words if you are to be built up and edified. What are these words? David wants to preface what he's about to say again by explaining who he is as he says these words. And he says a number of things about himself. He is the son of Jesse. He is that boy who took care of his father's sheep in Bethlehem. He's that boy of a humble origins. He was not anyone who had any claim for greatness. He was just an average person living in Bethlehem. But he was someone whom the Lord took and raised up. He was someone that the Lord exalted. It says there, the Lord raised him up on high. He elevated him to the status of being a king. That is something that God himself said to David. You remember when he made that covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, that he made that clear. I took you from tending your father's sheep and I raised you up on high. I made you into a king. That David's greatness and success was not because of anything in David. He was just a shepherd boy from Bethlehem. It was because of God's favor upon him that he became a shepherd king. But David says that he had this great success because the Lord took him and made him king. That as God himself promised that he would make him great over his enemies. I will give you a great name like the names of the great ones of the earth. David also describes himself as the anointed of Israel. The word there anointed is really the word Messiah. He is the one who has been set apart by God to do the Lord's work. He is the one whom the Lord has raised up as a deliverer, the one who would be the servant of the Lord in the Lord's project. And David sees that that's what he was. You remember when David stood before his brothers and Samuel the prophet came to David and anointed him. And it tells us that when he was anointed with oil by Samuel, that from that day forward, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and blessed him in his endeavors. He was truly anointed by God. And he was anointed to be a man after God's own heart. And so David is saying, as I'm saying these words to you, you need to remember who I am. That I am the servant that God has raised up to be a blessing to the people of God. The one from a humble origin who became the king. The one who was anointed to be a deliverer of God's people, the one who was to be a sweet psalmist of Israel. Not only was he granted great success as a king, but David was one who would lead the people in the praises of God. He was the one who would usher them in to the presence of God's courts of grace, giving them the words to be able to express their adoration of God, to be able to know of, with confidence of God's favor, David was the one who was forming that our ability to come before God with boldness, to know how to relate with their God. 
And David was the one who wrote and composed many of these psalms and became known as that sweet psalmist. This is who David is. He's the prophet of God. He's the king of God. He's the one who led them in the very worship of God. But there in verse 2, he goes on to say, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, and his word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken, and the rock of Israel has said to me. David now helps us understand the weightiness of his oracle. What I am saying to you is important, not just because I'm about to die. What I am saying to you is important because it's God's word. That what I am saying to you is a message that has been given to me by God himself. And this is one of those many passages in the Bible that highlights that those who were the recipients of God's revelation, the prophets, they understood that they were being spoken to. That they didn't think that they were just crafting opinions or sayings or guesses about what was to be or what God wanted. They were those who had received a message and understood that they were then to relay that message on to others. And David here is saying that God has spoken to him and that what he is about to say is important because it's God's word himself. As the Apostle Peter says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. David was still of sound mind as he hears these revelations. He understands that this is God speaking to him. And now he feels the, owner, the onus to highlight that revelation to them, to be able to bring them uh, to focus on it as well. So David's last words are words of hope. And if we're going to find words of hope in this life, they have to elevate beyond human opinion. They can't simply be someone's own thoughts or someone's own opinions. If we're going to have hope in this world, we have to build that hope on something more secure than someone's passing thoughts. It has to be built on something secure. God's word that does not change. God's purposes that are certain. And David is saying to us here, this is a word of hope because it's a word of God. But David's word of hope is also a word of hope, not only because it's based on God's word, but it's a word of hope because it's based on God's promise. The core of David's last address is in verses three and four. He says, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. What's at the very center of David's last words is the concentration on a ruling one. One who will rule over all mankind. And David says, this is, this is where all the hope lies. It's in a certain kind of ruler who's characterized by two facets. One is righteousness. And two is the fear of God. He will be characterized by righteousness because he will do what is right. He will establish justice. He will, he will set things in order. He will uphold God's design so that God's purposes will be realized. That's the hope. 
And he says the hope is guaranteed on the basis that he will live in the fear of God. Everything will fall under this umbrella of reverence to the will of his father. And so as David is articulating hope, he says it centers on one ruling over mankind. One who will govern God's creation, but he'll govern it in a certain way. He will establish righteousness and he will live honoring God above all else. And he says when this happens, you can compare it. The effects of this reality would be like the morning light dawning. We're now entering into the fall and the mornings can be quite cool. The evenings can be quite cool. But when you see the sun rise in the morning, you see the, not only the light of the sun, but you, you begin to have that relief from the coolness. You know the comfort of the heat is coming. And so the morning light is something that you welcome. And here David is saying, when a ruling one is established over all, it'll bring the comfort that we long for. It'll bring the relief that we wish for. It'll be like the rain that causes the grass to sprout up from the earth. You think in the, in the Middle East how quickly the grass can grow up just with overnight rain. And here David is saying, when such a ruler comes, it will cause renewal. It will cause what has been broken down to flourish. It'll show the ideal to be realized. So David's last words are words of hope. Words of hope that are based on the fact that ultimately it's coming from God, this message. But secondly, it is based on the fact of a ruling one who will establish God's ways on the earth. Now you may be sitting here thinking that this idea of hoping in a ruling one sounds nothing more than wishful thinking. This just sounds like dangling a carrot, saying things could be better in the future if such and such a situation arose. But before you just discard that idea of what David is presenting here as wishful thinking, we have to ask ourselves, like John Woodhouse asks, but do we have reason to hope in such a ruling one? Do we have reason to put hope in such an idea? And David is saying we do. We do have reason to hope in this. The Bible is not simply a collection of sayings. The Bible is an unfolding story of God's purposes. And that's vital that we get that in our heads. God is unfolding himself to us in time. And God's promises come to us and are fulfilled in time. In other words, we're not working with a blank slate. God made many great and awesome promises. You think of the promises that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation. You think about how he promised that he would bring them into the land of promise, into the land of Canaan. Those things happened. You think more narrowly, even here in the life of David, that God would anoint him to be king over Israel, that he would grant him success and that he would deliver Israel from the Philistines. Those things happened. But the fulfillment of God's promises are to be anchors and stepping stones for us to trust in what God's greater works are going to be. 
And so for the people of God living in this time, they could look back and say, God did do great things through Moses, through Abraham, through David's life. And so if God was faithful then, we can trust him in what he's promising in the future. So why should we put our hope in this ruling one? Part of the reason is is because of what God has already done. His promises have been fulfilled to this point. But the other part of the reason is what David goes on to say there in verse 5. Does not my my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant. Why should we put our hope in such an idea that there will come a ruling one to rule over mankind, to establish God's design, to bring forth the blessings of the morning dawn, to bring forth renewal where there's so much decay and death? David is saying, because God made a promise, because God made a covenant. And God's covenants are firm. Remember we talked about how a covenant is that binding agreement with life and death consequences that God makes with his people to bring about his purposes. David's whole life has been framed by it. But that covenant goes beyond David's life. David's horizon then is not limited to the 80 years that he lives. It's, 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 it's extended beyond that. God's promise endures forever. And so here David is trying to encourage the people to live with hope. Why? Because God made a covenant. And he describes that covenant uh, here in these closing verses. That covenant becomes the grounds of their hope. He says first that that covenant is an everlasting covenant. It never ends. David's reign ends. David's life ends. The golden age of Israel ends. God's covenant endures. It's everlasting. It it is begun in eternity past. It is something that endures uh, forevermore. But secondly, he also says that it is ordered. There, uh, back in verse 5, for he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things. You young people, maybe your mom or your dad tells you that it's time for supper, but we have to get things in order before we eat. What are they saying? They're saying we need to set the table. We need to put the plates out. We need to put the cups out. We need to put the silverware out. Things have to be set up and arranged if we're going to eat. It needs to be ordered. But here David is celebrating not only has God made a promise, but everything has been set up and arranged so that we are able to enjoy what God has promised. It's secure, therefore, because the one who has promised all these things has arranged things to make it come to fruition. David celebrates then that it is uh, in order and it will come to pass. It is therefore secure because God is keeping watch over all things and it won't break down with time. It is everlasting. It is ordered. It is secure. He also goes on and he says, For will he not cause to prosper all my help? 
Some translations use that word help as the word salvation because it's the same word. That he will cause to prosper all my salvation, my deliverance. David's confidence is, is that God's covenant will bring about his deliverance. What does David need to be delivered from? Ultimately, it is from the guilt of his sin. That David here is putting his confidence that God will work together his deliverance uh, uh, according to God's promised blessings through this coming king. And then finally, he describes this covenant not only as everlasting, not only as ordered and secure, not only does he describe it in light of as my deliverance, but also as my desire. The very longing for relief, the very longing for a better state, the very hope, again, is an indicator. Where do these longings come from unless God himself is the one who brings them to fruition? Many have made that uh, argument in the past. The reason why we have longings and desires is because there is some way for them to be met and realized. David is saying, my desire, my hope is something that is only fulfilled through God's covenant promise. And so all of this is the grounds for why we have hope. This isn't wishful thinking, David says. David, God has already done many great things in fulfillment of his promises. But he's also made a very clear promise as well. That God, David's kingdom would endure forever. That God would cause one of his descendants to sit on the throne. And that his kingdom would shine like the sun. That it would bring prosperity to all the nations of the earth. And that those who put their hope in him will be blessed. The prophet Micah would pick up on this language of a ruling one. And we read of it oftentimes at Christmas. But in Micah 5, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to be a ruling one of Israel. Micah is highlighting this king that would come forth, one who is from of old, one who is from ancient days. The one spoken of by David in Micah is the ruler of all mankind, one who is marked by righteousness and of a fear of God. That ultimately this is speaking to us about the Lord Jesus. Jesus came into this world to dispel the darkness of sin, to bring renewal in his creatures, to give them of his spirit so that they would be made new creations in Christ. That those who have come to know of God's forgiveness are not just improved. They're renovated. They're transformed. It's, it's like the, the dew uh, coming upon the grass. It just brings forth new life. In fulfillment of what David was saying here. That the king's coming brings transformation. And it ultimately is the hope uh, for sinners. Death can have a way of putting things in perspective. But as David approaches the end of his days, he's not deflated. He's not downcast that it's over. David is able to look forward with hope because he's anchored on the word of God. God has made a promise. And so David is looking beyond his life and he's telling the people of God to do the same. 
It is a word of hope. But then secondly, we, there is also a word of warning. In the, the final verses of the chapter, uh, David warns uh, of those who despise uh, God's promises. He says in verse 6, But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. David's last words are words of warning. The blessings that are associated with this ruling one will only be enjoyed by those who embrace that coming king. To those who embrace him and God's uh, work. Those who do not want to live under the righteous rule of this king. Those who do not want the fear of God to be realized are those who are marked as the worthless ones here. Throughout Samuel, the worthless ones are those who have despised God's revelation. Those who have ignored God's will and have pursued their own course in this life. They are those who have uh, been flippant with God's purposes. And here is this warning to them that not all will enjoy the blessing of God's work, but only those who have been humbled and see their need of that renewal. Only those who see the work of God as something glorious and to be embraced. The reality of the warning is, is that they are like sharp thorns, a sign of the curse of the sin. Something that does not befit in the new creation. Something that does not belong in God's purposes of grace. But they are then to be gathered and burned. Jesus here is then, uh, or sorry, David here is warning of the outcome of those who reject God's purposes. But Jesus spoke in the same way. Jesus warned in John 15 that those who do not abide in him, those branches are broken off and will be cast into the fire and burned. Jesus was warning there of the danger of not being united in faith to the ruling one, to the king, the one who despises God's work of grace and lives flippant with God's revelation, treats God's word as indifferent. Jesus warns of the judgment that comes on those who are uh, uh, ignoring what God has said. In one of Jesus' parables, he speaks of a certain man who was going to receive a kingdom. But his servants said, we do not want this man to reign over us. And Jesus warned that those who are like that will be cut down in the end. Just as David here speaks of warning, Jesus did the same thing. We may not like the idea of these warnings in scripture. Maybe you feel like they're, they're not fit. Uh, that we don't need to go there. But these warnings are not to scare us into the kingdom of God. Rather, they are to alert us to the weightiness of our actions. They're alerting us to the consequences of our decisions. And they're impressing upon us the severity of these two outcomes. I was speaking recently with my kids And we were talking about how when you see signs, those signs are impressing upon you a reality and the danger of the consequences of your actions. We might think it should be sufficient to simply put up a sign that says, please be careful before you pass a school bus. 
Please be thoughtful about the safety of the children before you turn and pass that bus. But we know that those recommendations will not always achieve the desired result. And that's why when you look at a school bus, it gives you a warning. A warning of the consequences of making an illegal pass. Not to try and scare you as a driver, but to alert you to the consequences, the severity of your decisions. David here is not trying to scare anyone into the kingdom. He's trying to alert us to the importance of handling God's word rightly. The worthless ones are those who despise God's word. Jesus warns us of being flippant with God's grace. And that when we realize the importance of what is put before us in a Savior, we should treasure it and not be flippant ourselves. Scripture then is trying to impress upon us the importance of how we respond to God's work. Because God promised a ruling one who would come, whose righteousness would be established in the fear of God, and through whom God's blessing would be realized. You go back and you read Ephesians. That's what Paul is celebrating. That we have hope because God has exalted him above every name. Because in him the righteousness of God has been established. That in him we can live with hope. That we live not simply for the present moment, but looking to God's works. And we're being shaped by those words. David at the end of his life sought to edify the people of God with his last words. He tried, to, he tried to encourage them by pointing them to God's promise. Jesus did something similar even when Jesus left this world. His last words were also words of hope. All authority and in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the ruling one. But then Jesus said, I am with you always. Can we have hope? David says yes. So does Jesus. Because he's the ruling one. And because in time, his righteousness will be established. And there will be no more darkness. There will only be God's blessing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think over the last words of David, we pray that we would see that there is a basis for hope in this world. We pray, Lord, that we would see the unfolding of your works in time, but also that we would see the certainty and the security of your covenant promises. Help us, Lord, to see that those promises are not aimless or abstract, but that they point us ultimately to the ruling one, the Lord Jesus who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who has been given authority over all things in heaven above and on earth beneath. And so we pray, Lord, that we would treasure him ourselves and be people uh, who look forward to the establishment of righteousness and peace and hope. In Jesus' name we pray.